0: This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and physician Gaber Marte is joined in conversation by CIIS professor Meg Jordan to explore his life and work in trauma and addiction. This talk was recorded on April 7, 2017 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu podcast.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to have me welcome you back to CIS because after living in Vancouver for a few years, uh, being doing some health reports for Global TV there, I knew of his work. I lived over in False Creek area and actually knew the streets that he walked in the East Hastings neighborhood. So, Dr. Matei, excellent to bring you back here. Thank you. Thank
2: you. You might want to call me Gabor. Would that work for you?
1: I would like Thanks. that. Thank you. Ms. Since, Ms. Since Dr. Jordan. Since we just slurped you. a beer together yeah. a minute ago, good. Also, I want to say that for those who are familiar with his work, you might appreciate that I'm going to kind of do a, a bit of a retrospective journey with him. Because I just, in talking with you just a minute ago, found out that The writing process just births these creative ideas from you, and ideas that are often at odds with the conventional wisdom at the time. And he's done this with milestone books through the ages. So you're all going to take a little bit of a retrospective journey as we look at each of these books together and and the um, zeitgeist of ideas that flourished after each one's publication. So if can we do that? Can we take yeah, a little trip down there? Although
2: I would say it's conventional lack of wisdom that I have. With, you know. <laughs> All right. I, if there was wisdom, I'd be out of a job.
1: <laughs> it's good. Oh, that's that, with that kind of opening, we'll go right to 1999 with Scattered Minds. Yeah. Scattered Minds. And there you were How Attention Deficit Disorder
2: Originates and What You Can Do About It. So, again, that's the Canadian title, the American title is Scattered. Um, they cut the word "mines," um, uh, thinking that the American public wouldn't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> so the Canadian title was "The Canadian title was 'Scattered Mines.'" W- w- the reality was that I was diagnosed, it, self-diagnosed uh, first back in mid '90s, '96 or so, when I was working at palliative care, and uh, a social worker on the unit. Uh, of terminal people asked to have coffee with me and she said can i have a coffee and i said yeah and so we sat down and had a coffee and she told me she's just been diagnosed and uh, with adult adhd which i knew nothing about which made me a very typical physician actually and um, within five minutes i understood why exactly it was me that she wanted to have coffee with because everything she said about herself the lack of impulse control the hyperactivity the difficulty sitting still the uh, wandering mind the the tuning out um, the chaos in one's life uh, resonated uh, very much with my own experience and uh, within a couple of months um, two of my kids were diagnosed with it as well, and, and, uh, which seemed to prove the conventional lack of wisdom that it's a genetically inherited disease, which of course is nonsense, it's neither inherited nor is it a disease. Um, and, and you can tell that it isn't, because else if it's a genetic condition, how explain its rapid growth in terms of all the people being diagnosed internationally now, and the more civilized the country gets, the more ADHD you get. Civilized I mean industrialized globalized and so on so there has to be something driving that and it can't be genetics Because genes don't change so in a population so if the number of prescriptions are are going up all the time It can't be driven by any genetic um, factors and That's the first point. the second point is although I hadn't done a research yet something was intuitively clear to me was that the tuning out, the absent-mindedness, and this actually is my theme around mental illness in general, the absent-mindedness, the tuning out, is not a disease at all. It's actually a normal human capacity, which we have um, for a whole lot of reasons, but one of them is so that we can endure stressful times, which are too much for us to be aware of. If, and if I was stressing you right now, overstressing you, and you couldn't escape or fight back or seek help, your brain would dissociate. That 's one way to deal with it, and so the real question is, why do so many people increasing number of kids having to dissociate from reality tuning out and that 's before I knew how the brain actually developed and but I went to go to, went to a party where I met a psychologist who was just going down to Seattle to hear some lectures by two seminal figures, Dr. Dan Siegel and Dr. Alan Shore, who are you know um, brain developmental pioneers, I would say, and that's where I learned that the brain is actually shaped by the environment, so that, you know, which circuits develop and which do not has to do with the environment. To make a long story short then, uh, if you have children who are, by definition, unable to escape, fight back, or ask for help uh, in a stressed environment, whether because of external stresses on the parents, like in my case, war and genocide as that when I was an infant, or uh, multi-generational trauma or social stresses, economic stresses and so on, uh, then kids are in a position that they're tuning out when their brain is developing. And so that the temporary state of tuning out becomes a long-term trait. And that's my point about all mental illness, and I'll be talking about that over the next two days, is that, is that when something goes from a state to a trait, now you've got a problem. And so the same coping mechanisms that help you in your one setting becomes a prison in another setting. And so that was my view of ADHD back in the late 1990s. And of course, people say, you're blaming the parents. No, you're not blaming the parents. You're just saying that the parents are stressed. And when the parents are stressed, the kids are stressed. And when the kids are stressed, when the brain is developing, that tuning out becomes programmed as sort of the default setting of the brain. And now you've got this condition.
1: The condition, too, at that time was, I mean, it was at the height of the Ritalin prescription writing craze, too. You yourself experienced that drug. You said that you had some initial euphoria on it, that you went into a little bit of a depressed state from it. You tried the next drug. You said it made you a more efficient workaholic. Yeah. I mean, this is, we have a biopsychosocial model here at play, in other words.
2: Absolutely. And I and I did take uh, stimulants for a number of years, and they helped me. I, I, I it didn't help my workaholism. Mean, it, it doesn't change any of your emotional patterns. It made me focus better though. It helped me write my initial books. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, the Ritalin I self-medicated, the very first day I heard about ADD, a typical impulse control problem. You know, I, I went to one of my palliative care colleagues and I said, hey Bev, I think I got ADD. Can you give me some Ritalin? She said, sure, how much do you want? You know, which is not the way it's supposed to work. No, it's not. And so my wife is in the audience, and I, I took the Ritalin, of course, in a higher than recommended dose, thinking that if a little bit is good, more is even better, which is not how I, I practice medicine, by the way. But, you know, but So I came home, and I was full of insight and love and presence, and Ray said to me, you look stoned. And that was my introduction to ADHD
1: worked for you. You know, the environment of children, you, you really came into an insight on that. It was, it was probably something that led to your next book as well in 2004, Hold On to Your Kids, You Know, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. And this one struck me so much at the time. I had my two and uh, stepchildren, twos, and a household of chaos with four of them. And I really felt that whatever was going on in the house, it was still being undermined. By pressures outside of it you know whether it was peers or new video games or the digital devices everything else was sort of stepping in and completely undermining any kind of child parent covenant that I thought was sacred for myself and you touched on that so so beautifully in this book
2: well I, I cannot take credit for that book I, I, I can take credit for the writing and the shaping of it but the uh, seminal ideas are those of my friend and colleague Gordon Neufeld who's a just the world's most brilliant developmental psychologist um, who lives in Vancouver. And we got to know him because Ray, and my wife and I, went to him for help with our kids. And so his perspective, which is totally aligned with my own thinking by that time, was that the most important dynamic in human life is attachment. Attachment meaning um, seeking closeness with another human being uh, or other human beings for the purpose of being taken care of or Taking care of the other. And that attachment drive is, of course, uh, the, the just instinctual and biologically driven. And, and it's, it's an imperative without which we don't survive. I mean, we don't survive either as individuals out there in the wild in over two million years of evolution, nor do we, and particularly we don't survive as infants. So attachment has to be built into us, and it is. Um, but, but nothing in nature tells us who to attach to. So that there's no circuit in the brain that says you better attach to mom and dad. And there's a good reason for that because mom and dad may die. And if we're just wired to attach to them, we'd be lost. But it's the job of the community and the culture to make sure that the appropriate attachment figures are present. Now if you look at um, Conrad Lorenz, uh, the uh, ethologist and... Uh, and uh, you know, studies animal behavior in their natural habitats, and, and, and Lorenz, when baby ducks are deprived of the presence of the mother duck, the little ducks will attach to an inanimate object, because they have to attach to something. And once they're attached, that's called imprinting, and that's his work. And, and, and once they're attached to that inanimate object, it's hard to get them to attach to an actual, uh, live duck. Now, of course, that inanimate object is not able to bring up that, that duckling to adulthood. Now, in other words, it's the job of the culture and society to make sure that the attachment figures are in place. And if you look at human society, if, um, if, if human evolution, which the first hominids appeared on the earth maybe two, two and a half million years ago. If you look at hu- human evolution, which begins at that wall over there, and if you consider the big CII sign on that wall there as the present time, then until this far away from the CII uh, uh, sign, we lived in small band how to groupings where kids were always around adults and many adults so that they, they just felt ensconced in a, in a network of, of safe and, and consistent attachments. And <clears throat> more civilization happens, the more that breaks down. But even until recently, most people most children grew up around adults, even even in uh, the Western world. Now, in our society today, with the, the breakup of families and communities and the globalization and destruction of, 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 of uh, local economic structures, the malls and the Costco's and the Walmarts and the, the, the car culture and, and, and the uh, both parents having to work and the high divorce rate, never mind kids are around, never mind the kids are not around adults uh, a whole lot of adults they're not around even their parents
1: no they're around sometimes just a hostile or negatively sexualized culture or uh, well uh, actually and,
2: and specifically young kids are around kindergartens okay and 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 so and and so it's just like the duckling so the the duckling will attach imprint on whoever's around so will the kid and who's around are other kids so our children have become peer-attached, peer-oriented. And, other, and, and the problem with that, as Gordon points out, is that, is that we get our sense of direction and values and who we are and what's meaningful and, and what's important and how to talk and how to look and how to walk from the people that we're oriented t- towards. And we're oriented towards the ones that we're attached to. So now kids are orienting to other kids. And then we've given them this stuff so that even when they're not with each other, they're with each, each, each other. And so parents have completely lost their moorings and their position and, and, and that kind of what you, the situation you discussed. That It's almost like parents today have to fight the culture. To hold, on, to hold on to their kids, whereas before, the culture would support the parents being with their kids.
1: It's gotten so bad. You know, I was in in China, or in, in Japan as well, and they, there was a conference and we were looking at um, four to seven-year-olds who are on digital devices more than four to six hours a day That's right. are losing their capacity to recognize human emotion, which is a basic birth human birthright in a sense
2: not long as it a birthright, it's a birthright, a, it's a necessity a
1: necessity, exactly you know? so it's like a, I mean, I'm not sure where we need to go after hold on to your kids, but it's, to me it absolutely did lead to all the problems that you start to, to elucidate in when the body says no, which I guess was about the same time in published uh,
2: but that came out a little bit you? before hold on to your kids, I oh, um, did it, okay yeah, uh, but, but within a year of each other uh but the stress, yep.
1: the mounting stress that happens yeah. to the neuroendocrine, the developing brain, and everything else, and that the ensuing um, chronic diseases that we're starting to really pinpoint these these connections at this point, Gabor, it's a, just a, it's overwhelming. It's this this book. If you haven't read it, so when the body says no, this is required reading of all the integrative health students in this program, and and because your narratives in here bring the stories home with such compassion. Mm -hmm. I just thank you for that.
2: Well, uh, again, and that was based on, um, thanks for the acknowledgement, that was based on um, the fact that in family practice and in palliative care, I got a pretty good sense. Here's the thing, as a family physician, you get to see people before they get sick. You also get to see families in multi-generational connections. The specialist only sees you once you're sick. And, and so they have no idea what you were like before or, or, or what your family background is. Nor are they trained to ask or to notice. So they just focus in on the physical uh, process in a particular organ. That's what they look at. Now, you just can't help noticing if your eyes are open. Well, you can help it. A lot of doctors never notice it. But uh, is that who gets sick and who doesn't isn't accidental. So the people that develop, cr- like chronic illness, like rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes and so on, th- these are not um, natural diseases. They are the results of a certain kind of life. Uh, in, amongst North American natives, there was virtually no autoimmune disease. No autoimmune disease. And now, that same population is highly affected by autoimmune disease within the last hundred years. So something one hundred twenty years. So something has happened, and actually, what's happened is stress. And so um, people who um, generate stress in their lives, in sometimes ways that they don't, not often, in the way, they, uh, in ways that they can't recognize, are prone to uh, cancer or autoimmune disease for the simple reason that Megan and I were talking about before the talk, there's this whole science called psychoneuroimmunology, which studies the connection between the psyche, that is to say, the emotional centers in the brain, the nervous system, the hormonal apparatus, and the immune system. And even when I say it studies the connections, and this will be the st- uh, topic of the workshop tomorrow, I think, uh, e- even to say that it studies the connections is inaccurate because it creates the idea that somehow separate systems are connected but they're not separate systems so that the psyche the immune system the hormonal system the nervous system they're the same apparatus
1: it is well it's the same dualism that permeates all of medical orthodoxy still i mean it just you know we've spent a long time reattaching the head to the body for myself in this in an integrative kind of way because it's our own medical and nursing conditioning and that you go through, you start to learn to separate everything. But when you get more in touch with the body's inner state and you sense, my gosh, there are ways of self-soothing, there are ways of social support, of relations, that's all part of my healing journey here and, and connecting those dots. But the, the one that really stands in stark contrast for me now is, is um, loneliness. Yeah. Can loneliness make us sick?
2: Well, uh, and, and we know that. Um, uh, well, I, I'll give you one example. Um, a study in Australia uh, looked at 500 women with breast biopsies, breast lumps that needed to be assayed for malignancy, and um, the women underwent a psychological interview, and. When the results came back, it turned out that if the woman was highly stressed, that by itself did not increase the risk of the lumping cancers. If she was emotionally isolated, around the time that the lump appeared, that also did not increase the chance of the lumping cancers. But if she was stressed and isolated, the risk of that lumping cancers was nine times as great as the average. And the and the researchers could not figure this one out. Because they said, how does, nine, is, how does zero and zero add up to nine? But of course what happens is, and again, this will be, I'll talk a bit more in this detail tomorrow, I think. If, if, say, you, sir, in the front, was highly stressed right now, your stress would not just be an emotional um, uh, state. It would be a physiological state with your nervous system firing off and your immune system and your hormones, stress hormones, adrenaline, cortisol, high levels. But if your friend next to you said, hey, how are you doing? Do you want to talk about it? Immediately your stress levels go down. And you're fine. But what happens if there's nobody to talk to? Not not for months. You'll be stewing in this juice of physiological stress. And you know what it's like. I've been in that situation. Where something happens in your life and you're really upset about it and you have no way of resolving it. And, and, And then you just keep going over it. Well, your body's in turmoil. But no wonder then, These and, and of course what we know is that the stress hormones which save your life in the short term will kill you in the long term, specifically they suppress your immune system. So, so no wonder then that the woman who's stressed and isolated has got a much higher chance of dying. So yes, not just loneliness in the sense of emotional loneliness, but even you can have lots of friends, but if you're not sharing with them. If you're not reaching out. If you're not reaching yeah. out, if, if yeah. you're not receiving, you've got a much chance of, greater chance of dying. And all kinds of studies have shown that the lonelier people get sicker, they get more sick, and they die sooner of the illnesses.
1: What about the person who is a loner, the introvert, who says, you know, I don't need to reach out. I have my holistic breathwork practice. I do my yoga. I do this and that. I have my list of all my holistic self-care practices. I mean, it it seems as though in this age of interpersonal neurobiology and everything, we're saying, no, social relations matter. We keep coming back to that. And I worry about the self-isolating introvert.
2: Well, so... um I'm pretty sure that if the Buddha had isolated himself for 40 years, he would not have got sick. When you're at that level of realization and differentiation, when you really know who you are and all your choices are made consciously, then if you choose to be alone really consciously, because you're just going to connect with...
1: <laughs> with the divine, you're not really, really with alone. with
2: Whatever yeah. you're going to connect with, you're going to be okay. But I want to know who that person is who's saying that. In, yeah. in other words, <laughs> if he's not the Buddha, then I'm worried about him or her. Because they could be saying those beautiful things out of strict emotional defensiveness, out of deep hurt, out of, uh, out of uh, a sense that if I was in a relationship, I'd be unhappy. I wouldn't know how to neg- negotiate or navigate that. So that person then is at risk. It doesn't matter what they tell themselves. So it, it's, not, it's not the conscious stuff we tell ourselves, it's who we are. Who we are. Who's the person saying it? Where are they coming from, actually?
1: All right. Let's go to East Hastings a minute. Okay, This is the neighborhood that he has described in his book, when, uh, in the realm of hungry ghosts, that could actually be seen from satellite. It is such an area of, of massive despair, blight, people in the streets. And Seattle, or Vancouver, rather... Took a look at it, and I think it was 2003, and started Insight, which was the uh, North America's first uh, safe injection site, and on-site as well. They had a drug treatment program. Yeah, that's what insane. did you work
2: with? I worked on on the second floor. You did. So, yeah. you
1: were upstairs. So I had to cross Falls Creek, walk over there, and I could get over to the East ne- Hastings neighborhood, and and it was. It was such a tale of two cities, similar to what we have here in San Francisco, right? We we see it all the time, growing massive disparities. We have Twitter, which we just took a bite over there at that in massive uh, headquarters over there, and I showed them the oyster bar and everything else. But in the walk back, you can actually be stepping over bodies of people in this back alley here with heroin needles hanging out their arms. So in San Francisco right now, we're, Mayor Lee is considering... Do we establish a safe injection site? What would your recommendation be? You've worked at them.
2: Well, it's like, are we in favor of oxygen? You know, uh, <laughs> uh, because the proof that the harm reduction it, it saves lives and improves lives is as positive as it is that oxygen is necessary for life. It's just that obvious. Um, here's what you got in the United States right now. You have about 130, 140 uh, overdoses every day in your country right now. Which means that every month you've got the equivalent of nine eleven. Now we keep rabbiting on about the terrorist threat. Your, your chance, you know, of American dying from terrorism is like next to zero. Unless, unless you, you go over there and, you know, terrorize them into not being terrorists, you know, then then there might be a battle, you know. But 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 actually you got the equivalent of a 9-11 every day, every every month. And when you think of the or or to get a closer um, uh, analogy, take the SARS virus, all the public health resources and all the public alarm and all the newspaper that was spilled over it and the media coverage and the governmental mobilization. It touched very few people. A few dozen maybe. And here now you've got 9-11 happening every month. And nobody's doing anything about it. Which simply has to do with whose lives matter and whose lives don't matter. And... Now the supervised injection side, it's not a. Su- there, there's a quick solution to the to the heroin op- o- o- overdose. Yeah. Uh, that is actually an immediate solution. The immediate solution is make opiates available under supervised conditions to confirmed dependent people. So in Vancouver, there's a clinic that that actually prescribes heroin for people, and they come there three or four times a day and they inject it. No overdoses. Now, because of the illegality of the substance, of course, most people not having access to that kind of facility. What do they do? They have to buy it in the streets. And and from dealers who are going to put into fentanyl or whatever it is, you know. So we actu- we've created this op- op- opioid crisis with our totally irrational laws. And then we don't refuse to look at the international evidence of what would work. Supervised injection, prescribed opiates, and all that. It's not even minutely controversial if you look at the evidence. And so, so when you say, is it a good idea? Well, I mean, yeah, it's a good idea.
1: Oh, They think the last report I had when I was at Global was Vancouver estimates they saved maybe 5,000 lives just from, also from, now, you know, prevention spread of HIV, hepatitis C, uh, that's the, the amount of just needles scattered on the ground and litter. Absolutely. There's, there's M- you
2: have to say that we're losing again because of the fentanyl stuff. Yeah, there's so many people dying. I mean, I, I'm still involved, not working clinically, but I'm still involved in in a major organization that, that services that are down to the downtown east side, and and a lot of people are have succumbed to the uh, fentanyl overdose crisis, and and uh, now they're around, establishing more more supervised clinics and making it easier and all that, but they will not do even in BC, uh, they will not do the only rational thing, which is to prescribe the heroin to people so they don't have to bite in the streets, mm-hmm. you know? And um, so, the, and, and they're not even thinking about decriminalizing uh, the drugs, which, which is absolutely essential.
1: Well, it's being considered, and it's a first step here in San Francisco, and I think we could all weigh in on it as well, because we have a strong harm reduction emphasis here, CIS. We've also, you know, in in terms of the addiction that you covered there, um, you've had one character who's online who's one of your big critics. Can I bring him up? Is that okay? You've already answered him several times. No, I've never answered him. You haven't? No, I will not
2: engage with him. This character. I don't talk to rabid dogs. I just don't. (laughs) and he's rabid i mean literally he's rabid he's
1: rabid and you he know? doesn't you know he he doesn't buy the attachment theory stuff he doesn't look at you know he, on one hand you don't know if he's for yes, Harvard and you want to know the or story. not
2: he came to me asked me to endorse his book in which he misrepresents my work oh, this i said sounds i will scary. not endorse a book that misrepresents my work then he starts attacking me online mm-hmm. I, uh, I i don't engage with the guy
1: okay good i, I don't and
2: and, and the, he does not you know, he he says things like that I think the brain is damaged from birth and uh, by, uh, by stress and, and trauma and, and is irreparable. I say the opposite. Mm-hmm. I say the, directly the opposite. You know, so uh, there's, there's, nothing, there's, nobody, there's nobody at home to debate with. He's a traumatized man who's got a bit of a name in the addiction world, but I don't, I don't, I've never answered him. I don't well, debate with him, and I, I, and I will material, not. When you read his material,
1: it sounds like he's in pain himself, is but, what oh, I'm saying. Oh, he's in
2: deep pain. He's in yeah. deep pain. I, I met him, he's in deep pain, but he will not, doesn't want to deal with that pain. So he he hates so he hates the idea that I talk about trauma because if it was true he had to look at his own he doesn't want to do that um, he, even two weeks ago he wrote this thing about how this guy's got no sense of humor and he's he he he, he actually projects I I only wish he was right you see because he says that I'm the head of a big international trauma industry I mean. Good to God it was true.
1: Well, I'm glad I brought him up to and, flush and, and, and out and, and that and, and truth. That I was had, wondering uh, about
2: that. That I had all yes. this power, you know, and, and you know, I mean, I get...
1: So when I read him, I get a sense of... The ACE studies, the adverse childhood experiences yeah. studies, which is just keeps pouring in all the time. Kaiser did some of the first work with it in the late '90s, and 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 uh, the the facts and figures on this of painful circumstances, whether it was family violence or divorce or drug or alcohol use disorders in the family, and and the linking of uh, seven to ten times greater risk than to substance use abuse. Um, Adve- these Adverse Childhood Experiences is something that you circled around your whole life in terms of both books, really.
2: Yeah, well, uh, three of the four books anyway, Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, here's a really uh, amazing story. Yeah, so the, these Adverse Childhood Experiences studies, the AC studies, were done here in California under the Kaiser Permanente system. Uh, One of the chief investigators is a good colleague of mine, Dr. Um, Vince Felitti, who works, uh, internal medicine specialist in San Diego. And his work began, or he was working at an obesity clinic. And they found that they could help people lose weight with rigorous dietary control and exercise. Guess what they couldn't do? What? They couldn't help people keep keep it off. That's right. And and Felitti says, what's going on here? And then he did this amazing thing. He actually listened to his patients. And uh, and I said, don't you get it? We're eating to soothe ourselves from childhood childhood pain. And 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 that then initiated the study where they looked at 15,000 people, I think close 15, 16,000 people, Californians, mostly Caucasians. At least 50 percent had been to college, and they just found that the more childhood adversity, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, a parent dying, a divorce, a parent being jailed, violence in the family, a parent being addicted or mentally ill, neglect. For each of these ACEs, the risk of addiction goes up exponentially, they don't add up, they multiply, number one. And number two, so does the risk of mental illness, psychosis, uh, attention problems, behavior problems, and autoimmune disease go up you know, significantly. So this is Kaiser Permanente. Now here's the punchline three years ago, four years ago, I was invited by Casio Permanente in San Diego to present a talk on addiction to some of their clinicians. And so a month before the program, uh, they sent me an email saying, could you send us some supportive literature that buttresses your point of view? I said, yes, studies done in your organization in San Diego. They didn't know about it.
1: Take a look at your own files. How could they they have missed it? They did not
2: know about it.
1: Oh, that's crazy. Now,
2: my point is that, like everything I've been talking about today uh, with Meg, the research has been done and done and done, and more stuff keeps coming in every day, and it makes not a bit of difference in the clinical world. It's like it didn't exist. It sinks without a stone. That's why the first chapter, when the body says, no, it's called the Bermuda Triangle. Because the the evidence comes in and it's published. It's published in major journals. It's not. It's not published in fly-by-night, um, you know, California granola publications. It's it's. Uh, it's, it's published we have in, some of those. Uh, yeah, but it's, that's not what it's published. It's Published in serious journals. And it has no impact on clinical awareness, medical ideology, or clinical practice, which is a whole other subject. You know, I mean, the resistance or the imperviousness to reality. It's tremendous.
1: It is tremendous. And there's also a, a suppression of negative data that doesn't always support uh, a pharmacological perspective as well. I mean, we see both happening. I was, uh, I was your KTVU health reporter for years, and I was working on a story that was the first um, indication that there may be some problems with hormone replacement therapy with women, in fact. doubled the stroke and heart attack rates, and it was completely suppressed from many of the peer-reviewed journals at the time, and I was ready to give the story on it at uh, KTVU, and I was tapped on the shoulder by the news producer saying, Meg, could you kill that story or rewrite it, please? We have an ad from Wyeth Erst, Makers of Premarin, at 6 p.m. So much of our news is commercially shaped, much of our news, and I think this is why your book's Yes, they were well-received by the medical profession, but it was no, the no, actual no, public.
2: Weren't. But they weren't.
1: Oh, they were banned by the medical profession. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, 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 it yeah. was the public that went after them.
2: The public. Like, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, look, this month I get to speak to the Massachusetts Medical Society, who publishes the New England Journal of Medicine. So, I mean, I'm, I'm getting somewhere, but it's very slow. Um, but you know what? I, when you said that about your director telling you to kill the story, I, I thought of that line from... Casablanca you know where I'm shocked that I'm shocked that capitalism controls the the flow of information to the public really <laughs> how is this possible it was
1: news alert yeah. <laughs> it was uh, we've gone from i I want to move into this next chapter that I, I see though I'm, I'm I'm on the milestone journey here of these books and um and yes indeed the biopsychosocial model it resonates in the hallways of CIS but so does the biopsycho-spiritual model as well. And and your work with, with the plant world, the communication, the deeper soulful messages that you're receiving about what actually triggers a healing response within. If you could take us down that journey.
2: Well, I, I will, but uh, spirituality... just make sure that we don't confuse or at least confound spirituality with plant work, you know I mean, spirituality has existed quite nicely, thank you very much, without people doing hallucinogenic drugs, you know or substances, so that's one part of it, so I'm just reading a wonderful book, uh, one of the best trauma books ever written um, by my friend and teacher and colleague, Peter Levine called In an Unspoken Voice, for which I actually wrote the foreword, but I had not read the book in detail because you know it was a deadline, so um, I caught the essence of it. But I'm reading it. I'm just so impressed by the, his work on trauma, and his last chapter is on the healing of trauma and spirituality. And he's, it is not necess- and he's talking about shamanic perspectives, but not necessarily to do with mind altering uh, plants. So the, the the essence of shamanism is precisely what you touched upon, you talk about the healing capacity. And the, the Western medicine does not recognize that people have a healing capacity. It, it, it's all about curing. So, um, you know, like you cure meat, you know, you, 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 it, you're doing something to it from the outside to make it better. And, I, you know, I'm not dismissing that, except to say that it lacks the perspective that healing is a capacity of, of, of any biological organism.
1: Go so far in that forward, though, to actually quote Thomas Hora. All yeah. problems are psychological, but all solutions are spiritual. Right. That's a big leap.
2: It is, in in the sense that... Um, and, and I don't know where psychology ends and, and spirituality begins. I, mean, I, I just think it's a, a fluid, um, dynamic boundary there. But uh, ultimately... Uh, Western psychology has been focused on uh, making the ego function better. And that's important enough. I mean, there's a lot of people whose ego doesn't function well and they, then they become president of the United States. Uh, you can see what damage that does. It does. That's so if hurts. only his ego was a bit healthier, yeah, it the wouldn't. world would be a little bit safer. But, but, um, but it doesn't recognize that the ego itself is a construct. And that ego itself comes out of a defensive need and out of a loss of a sense of who we actually are uh, when we're not identified with um, emotions and thoughts and and, and body, so that that there's something deeper to us. And so, um, although you can't go teaching or preaching spirituality to people, ultimately healing comes from a deeper place And, 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 and it comes from a connection something greater than just what the ego can encompass now yes i do work with plants and 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 other um i mean i did a a healing session a six hour one uh, this sunday with with a substance called 3mmc which is not a plant it's a man-made product but this highly traumatized person from california actually he came up to vancouver it's incredible what he connected with in six hours. It would have taken ten years of psychotherapy; would not have got him there, and it did not get him there. So, um, I have all kinds of respect and and, and use for the power of the uh, the psychedelics, psychedelic in the pure sense of the word, meaning uh, mind manifesting, throwing light on the mind. Uh, but so that has that can of course, and it will have a spiritual dimension but it's also deeply psychological, and, 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 the, and the two are, again, in a very fluid balance.
1: A fluid balance that we would fully embrace here in our integral approach. Uh, as you know, you've helped us, uh, you've been given Good support to our uh, psychedelic assisted therapies and research certificate program, yeah. the CIS Center for Psychedelic Therapies and Research. And Which is
2: a pioneering program. It's the first it's one a anywhere.
1: Wonderful. We're really happy and pleased with Dr. Janice Phelps and her hard work with everybody there and all the, the first rung of, of uh, therapists have come through and um, healing clinicians. Um, I just had somebody write to me before this. They knew I was going to be talking with you tonight, and they said, I don't get it. I don't get it. If if taking drugs and plants is just a means to soothe an aching spirit or a psyche, why would any therapist espouse taking entheogenic substances to heal the same psyche? I don't get it. You guys are doing double speak there.
2: Okay, and yeah.
1: this was a really alarming email I got from somebody who had done an ayahuasca journey years ago, but dismissed it?
2: It's a common question. Uh, it's a good one to deal with. First of all, does this person know the meaning of the word entheogenic? Probably not. But Theo is the god. Yeah. Entheo is the god within. <laughs> entheogenic brings up the god within, the wholeness, the goodness. The uh, So why would somebody work with a substance that brings up the goodness and the wholeness within? That's why. <laughs> you know? Now, uh... As to the uh, as as to the um, fair question of people that are addicted to substances, why they're using a substance, that has to do with what's been called set and setting. So that has to do with what is the intention and who's the person doing it? Why are they doing it? With what it with what purpose? And what is the context in which they do it? So uh, say take something like tobacco. So that tobacco was used by uh, native uh, people in North America and South America for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, as a spiritual sacrament, and as a source of uh, insight and strength. And they were never addicted to it. So that there's nothing addictive about tobacco itself. Uh, It can be used purely as a teacher and in the Amazon, just as much as in the plains of Canada or United States, they used tobacco that way. Then you get misery, colonialization and 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 dislocation and trauma and suffering and Now people start using the same substance differently so and and for different purposes so um uh it's very, you know, when you do an ayahuasca ceremony, it's it's not like you're you given a bit of ayahuasca, take, t- take this every day, go home and take it every day as you would a drug. You're actually coming into a ceremony. And the ayahuasca is not the thing. The thing is the ceremony. The thing is what actually happens. But that's very much aided by the mind-opening nature of the plant. There's nothing in the least bit addictive about it. On the contrary, I mean, who the heck wants to... This bitter, this bitter, you know, actually, I, I figured out, I am sorry to go on, but... I want you to go on. I, anyway, <laughs> Jesus must have taken ayahuasca, because uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's arrested, he's, he says to God, take this, if you can, Lord, take this bitter brew from my hands. If I must drink it, I'll drink it. Now, nah, he's not talking about ayahuasca, but... Uh, I don't uh, think... It's, he a, might, real he might, he, it's he, a real stretch. It's a real stretch. It's a bit of a stretch, but, but, he, but, he, but he, he might as well be, because it tastes very bitter, it, yeah, know, and, and 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 so
1: he was looking at his sure defeat. He was looking at the agony. Yeah,
2: yeah and right. he was also saying, "But you know, not my will, but your will." Uh, the surrender. I'm going to do it. It's not going to be my the way I want it. It's going to be the way you want it. And uh, I, I don't like it, but I'll do it your way. So it's it's uh, it, essentially he's teaching surrender, uh, which really what one has to do in ceremony if one is going to get benefit from it.
1: Oh, it is a big surrender. I mean, if i done many a journey in South America, some up here. But I've also felt that the debrief afterwards was really important. And maybe it was because I'm a Western-born woman with a Western-trained mind that needed that kind of debrief afterwards. Mm-hmm. That the one journey I did do in Peru, um, I was just kind of let loose to the jungle. And I felt disintegrated. Absolutely.
2: So, So that experience can release... To go back to trauma, uh, in trauma, a lot of um, bitter emotion and a lot of charged energy gets suppressed. That's the nature of trauma. That is what trauma is. Again, I'll be talking about that over the next two days. And when you manifest the mind through this substance, (sighs) a lot of stuff comes up. Mm -hmm. But... If you look at the context in which these practices evolved, they were in communities with a shaman who knew the participants. And the participants shared a common culture. It wasn't a bunch of strangers come together for one night and then dispersing in the morning. So our our thought was, as soon as I I first experienced ayahuasca, my thought was, well, how can we then create at least a temporary community where people get to know and love each other and support each other, at least over a short period of time, like a week. And then, how can we go into ceremony, prepare, like preparing, a, you know, d- developing an intention and and developing uh, an understanding, and then afterwards processing what happened. So that's what I do now. I lead these retreats with the plant just a couple of times a year. It's a lifetime time for, but it's the most powerful thing that I do and I could read you and tell you about the amazing transformations that people experience. You wouldn't you wouldn't believe it.
1: I would believe yeah. it. I'm a you medical know. anthropologist. I okay, would well, believe you, it. Okay, believe but it, yeah. I know that that feeling of being safe and being understood yeah. afterwards and being held in the cultural context whether it's the temporary ones you've created with with real care and compassion or whether it is the village itself. I, mean, I mean, was a North American heading down there and was not within a, uh, I was in one of these kind of fast and dirty ecotourism ones. So there's yeah. some, it's a cultural appropriation and some misguided use as well. And that's and, really uh, why I honor our center right now. And there's a lot of
2: that. A lot. But let me just read you something I got, an email I got today from um, somebody who's married to a man who is, a, is quite an alcoholic and has he's written a Fairly well known book in Canada about his alcoholic history, and he came to the retreat. And then the wife writes me today. I've been meaning to tell you this for a while, but the longer I delay, the more I believe I'm witnessing the beauty of ayahuasca. Since my husband has returned from Mexico, he's a different person. The restlessness, irritation, reactivity, greatly diminished. People, events that would normally trigger a downward spiral of negativity are met with smiles and acceptance. He seems at peace with all that has gone before. The nightmares have also greatly diminished. He's experiencing the best sleep I've seen for seven years. They've been together seven years. When, he's, when there's been a difficult moment, it is over quickly and he doesn't allow it to destroy his day. He seems very committed to the meditation process began at the retreat. But this is after seven days and three ceremonies. And it's, I could give you more miracles than this. Now, it's not a panacea. And there are others who are still struggling to integrate what they experienced and we wanted to give them that support. So it's not like, drink this and you'll be saved. It's not like that at all. It is work, but but nothing I've seen, has such immediate potential uh, when it's properly done, it can also do harm if it's not properly done.
1: I love the way your your colleague, you wrote a foreword for him, um, Dr. Joe Taffer, Taffer,
2: yeah, Taffer, yeah, Taffer, Taffer
1: a, right. It's a book, The Fellowship of the River. It just came out, I think, this year yeah, as well. Yeah, just a month ago or so. Beautiful. He talks about it as if it's opening corridors of communication to deep-seated emotions that's right you know and that that deep-seated emotions that he feels were sometimes forgotten or suppressed or just ignored whoever that uh if you can have that experience and and in a loving context a caring context it's yeah. uh, it is powerful medicine but also
2: just you know just for the sake of truth and advertising um so I've done these ceremonies for years now, and and mostly I've done them in the context of guiding others. I don't lead the ceremonies. I'm not a shaman, but I, I do lead the processing. Um, but my wife, Ray, who's in a room with me, is never all that impressed with how I come back from these experiences. you know? and, uh, What on, does the, she and, say? Uh, sorry?
1: What does she tell you? Well,
2: I, see, what happens is I, I go to these retreats, and I'm just really on. I mean, I'm just really present, and I'm just working... S- you know, 14 hours a day and being there for everybody and drinking and not sleeping, you know. And I come back, bagged. On one hand I come back full of what a wonderful guy I am, having done all this great work. (laughs) Uh, 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 On the other hand I'm totally bagged, you know, because I mean it's hard, it's hard work. So you get a combination of this swollen head over this depleted body and that's what Ray's got to live with, you know. Uh, So. On the other hand, on the other hand, I participated in a yo- in a yoga course for the first. I, I thought I'm never going to do yoga. I'm not a yoga person. I got ADHD. I can't just, you know, no, no, no.
1: But you did it.
2: So I met this yogi. Good. Whose name is Sadhguru? Some of you have heard about him. Uh, in September, and um, I won't go into the whole story of how I met him, but I met him personally, and I was really impressed that he's a man who's actually got presence, and he said he's connected to the deep, or to the high, or to the full, or to the limitless you know you can just tell that he has so he devised a four-day yoga course which i participated in in october and and that's made an enormous difference more than for me drinking the plant has ever done personally so it's one thing so i can facilitate other people's transformation yeah but I suppose I've never surrendered to my own in terms of the plant oh. work, you know. So for that, I had to. What go. an
1: insight, my Sorry? God! Yeah, what amazing insight there, though.
2: Yeah.
1: It, it was done through the breath work, the asanas, the yoga yeah. itself. That's right. Just going into those asanas, those pastures, did this
2: and the teaching that he gives along with it, and 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 and, 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 and something about it called to me. So I've done it very, very this uh, in a dis- disciplined way that I never thought I would muster. So what I'm saying is that. Just to go back to what I said earlier, plants are exciting and kind of sexy these days, but it's not the only way. No. It's
1: not the only way. Many, many paths, many many paths. paths. Thank you. Thank you for connecting with your light and sharing it with everybody in here. Thank
2: Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.